Well, friends, let me invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and let me say, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we are ready for this. We have got Bibles that should be in arm's reach of you, on the back of the pew in front of you, or the back of the chair in the front of you, or down at the end of the pew that you're sitting on. Those are put there because we want you to have a copy of this book. We believe that it's a, a word to us from the God who made us. That's reason enough to pay attention to what it says, but it's even better than that. We believe this is a word of good news, that, that what this book tells to us is the best news you can find anywhere, and it's the news we'll spend the rest of this morning considering together with this one section from John's Gospel, chapter 13. I wonder, how would you say that you can tell that someone is a follower of Jesus? What do you think? Where does your mind go first when you hear that question? Maybe the first thing you think about is what somebody says or believes is true about Jesus. That, that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. That he's the eternal, eternal son of God. That, that he became human like us. That he did this so he could live for us and die for us and reign as king over us. I mean, the truth is you don't get a Christian without those beliefs. That's for sure. But, but the Bible says that even the demons believe all those things are true. They aren't Christians. True ideas aren't enough. Maybe you hear last week, you paid super close attention to the sermon from John 13, 1 to 30. I hope you did. If you did, you know that Jesus put himself out there on the line to serve his friends. He set aside his, his own interests. He set aside what he deserved so he could give them what they needed. Maybe you think that's how you can tell someone's a follower of Jesus. A life of service. And service is huge. Christians are meant to serve like their master did. And it's commanded in the Bible. And nobody has a better reason than a Christian to serve other people. But, but my goodness, have I known faithful servants, selfless servants who weren't Christians who put themselves on the line, who, who sacrificed themselves for the needs of others, who put me to shame in all that they've given to serve the needs that other people have. From followers of other religions to followers of no religion at all, Christians aren't the only ones who serve. How can you tell someone is a follower of Jesus? What's the distinguishing mark of a Christian? Uh, that, that's the question Jesus means to answer in our section of his, his final words that we'll consider this morning. Uh, we're here in the middle of a series on John 13 to 17, rather, rather right near the beginning of the series. It, it, this is a section in John's gospel where John gives us a detailed look at the things Jesus said on the final night of his life. What was on his mind, what was in his heart in the final hours he spent with his disciples before he went to the cross. If you think about the, the the, the intense heat of what he was facing merely hours later, knowing full well what was to come. And if you think about the pressure of this time crunch he was in, this, this, these final hours that he knew were, were all too fleeting, what is the diamond that is created from those conditions, these final words to his disciples and through them to us? That's what we're looking at over the next few months together. What he wanted them to know, what he wanted us to know. And in this section, he tells them and he tells us that what he wants his followers to be known for is love. At the center of this, of this, of this 
section. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. By this. If you have love for one another. There's his answer. Well, wait a second. (laughs) Maybe you're saying, I hope you're saying, love? That's what's supposed to set Christians apart? That's how you're supposed to be able to tell someone's a follower of Jesus? Love is the distinguishing mark? I mean, who doesn't really think love is a good idea? If truth about Jesus isn't distinctive to Christians and sacrificial service isn't distinctive to Christians, it seems like love certainly wouldn't be distinctive. Who doesn't want love? I mean, that, uh, love is, is at the core of what disciples of pretty much every world religion are after, isn't it? Not to mention it's the theme of pretty much all pop songs from Frank Sinatra to Billie Eilish. Are you guys impressed that I know who that is? Hey, isn't love part of our personal branding from t-shirts to bumper stickers to hashtags pretty much everywhere you look? Uh, I don't know if you guys know it, but this is Burger Week here in Nashville. You're welcome. You've got one more day to enjoy Burger Week. It's put on by, the, I think, the Nashville Scene newspaper. Competition. It's burger offers all over the city who put forward one burger for that week to see if they can take home the prize. This week, I had the chance to eat one of these delicious burgers with a friend. Uh, I'm happy to tell you all about it later. But, you know, if, if, you're, if you want your burger to stand apart on Burger Week, if you want to take home that crown, you're probably coming up with a burger that no one's ever thought to come up with before. So, the burger I had this week, it not only had a slice of cheese on it, it had a big, thick slather of pimento cheese on it. And it didn't have mustard and ketchup and mayonnaise on it. It had barbecue sauce on it. And it didn't just have a fresh cut yellow onions, uh, you know, a couple of rings of that on it. It had crispy onion strings on it. It seems like if Jesus is trying to set his disciples apart, it's kind of like Burger Week. What you'd want them to be known for has got to be really distinctive, right? It, To say that you're supposed to be known for love is kind of like saying, you know what really set that burger apart? It had ground beef on it. That burger had a bun. That beef was right between two pieces of bread. Well, love? What is he talking about? What is this distinctive love by which all people can know you're his disciples? It really matters what sort of love he's talking about. And in this text, he says, you must love others as I have loved you. This love that sets his disciples off has a very specific shape and content. And Jesus, in this passage, puts this kind of love right at the heart of what a local church is for. That's what we want to look at together this morning. Now, here's how we're going to do it. I want to show you two things, two things that take you into the way that Jesus unfolds this central and simple idea. We need to see first the glory that Jesus shows to us. That's where John begins in this section. So that then we can see the glory that Jesus shows through us. First, the glory that he shows to us, then the glory that he shows through us. Let me read these few verses and then we'll unpack them together. 
This is the word of the Lord from John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31 and and carrying forward through verse 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is God's word. Point number one, the glory that Jesus shows to us. That is the glory of God's redeeming love for sinners. Let me show you. Verse 31 begins with what you might call a a, a bit of a tongue twister. I'll read it again. When he, talking about Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him, and if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him himself and glorify him at once. At a glance, that's a little confusing how all these statements fit together. But, But if you look just a little bit closer, and if you look at the bigger context of what John has been saying up to this point in his book, the main point that John's trying to get across through Jesus here is actually really clear. A few things you need to notice. Maybe this one's to state the obvious. You need to notice first that he's talking about glory here. Before he talks about love, he's really talking about glory. In the Bible, glory refers to a kind of visible greatness, something awesome that's also noticed, acknowledged, seen. In this case, the glory is a glory that's passed forth between the, the, the father and the son, one to the other, back and forth. It's like, it's like he's describing each one of the, the, the Trinity shining a spotlight on the other one, just kind of saying, you, 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 no, you, 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 you. The son is glorified by the father. The son glorifies the father, who glorifies the son, who glorifies the father back and forth. And, and the Bible tells us that's been happening for all of eternity. That is who God is. God is not a being like us. God is a being that is three persons in one God who exist to glorify and glory in one another. This is a little peek behind that curtain right here. And it's a huge theme in John. It comes out immediately in the, in the introduction to this book. In chapter one of John, John says, the word, talking about the son, became flesh, that's Jesus, he put on a body like ours, and he dwelt among us, and what happened? John says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he says, verse 18 of chapter 1, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. From the very beginning of this book, John has been telling us, this is a book about glory, a glory that you can, that's always been there, but that now you can see because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, here's the other thing you need to notice about John 13. This topic, glory, it's about to take a new step. There's something about this glory 
the glory that the Son and the Father bounce back and forth between one another. There's something about this glory that, that's unique to what's happening now, verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified. At once, verse 32. See, there's a, there's a kind of glory that God has enjoyed for all of eternity, long before any of us were around to see it. But the, the glory that Jesus has on his mind is a different shade. There's a particular display of greatness, something new and unseen before. And it's happening right here, right now. And the last thing you need to know is that when Jesus talks like this about glory, when he talks about what's happening now, what Jesus has in mind is the death that he's about to die. He's just sent Judas out, his betrayer, to do what Jesus knows he will do. The machinery of his betrayal and death has come to life. It started grinding. The gears are moving. Nothing's going to stop it now. That's the, that's the action of verse 31. When he, Judas, had gone out, when the wheels were turning, when Jesus is headed to his cross, just as he's, just as he's been doing from all of his life. When this happens, now is the Son of Man glorified. But what is it about the death of Jesus that shows us something about the glory of God. What is this glory that his death is going to show to us? Zoom out with me, big picture. All through the Bible, you'll find writers talking about the glory of God. Last month in June, we spent several weeks looking at how the Psalms Talk about the glory of God. Sing to him for the glory of creation. That's a huge theme in the Bible. Everywhere you look around this world that God made, you see his glory. You see it in sunsets. You see it in the smiles on children's faces. You can see it in Burger Week and how delicious it is to eat a hamburger. Everywhere you look in this good world that God made, you see his glory. The Psalms are full of praise to God based on the glory of creation. You read through the Old Testament, you'll also see lots of God's glory in the history of Israel. I mean, just take the Exodus, for example. The whole purpose statement of that book is that God was going to show who he is through how he showed up for Israel when they needed him. That whole scene was set up so that we could know something about him, so that his character could come out in our view. And boy, did it ever. When Israel was enslaved in in, in Egypt, Under the power of this Pharaoh, the Lord came to them, heard their groanings, and acted to set them free. He brought an empire to its knees. He brought Israel through the sea. He gave them a place of their own, all by his power. And he gave them his law, which was good and wonderful to enjoy. What kind of glory do we see now at the cross that we didn't already see from the world around us in creation? Or from God's dealings with his people through history. What's new now? The Old Testament had had always praised God for his steadfast love. But what we can only see through the cross is how deep that love goes and how widely that love is offered. Only here, only now, now, Only in this moment can we see the glory that is God's redeeming love for sinners. How deep his love goes. How widely his love is offered. Think about it. 
God created all the world for love. He wanted this world to exist. But all he had to do was was speak a word and it came into being. That cost him nothing. That wasn't difficult. And yeah, God did what we never could do in setting Israel free from Egypt when they were up under the thumb of that Pharaoh. But, But when he sent plagues on Egypt and when he parted the Red Sea, it cost him nothing to do that. But right here at the cross, to redeem sinners from their sin against him, it cost him something. The father had to send his only son. The son had to willingly come. The son had to not just enter our world, as incredible as that is, but march all the way to the cross. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the only one he had, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. We couldn't see that love, not the full scale of it, apart from what Jesus shows us here. And did you pick up on the whoever of John 3.16? In that verse, we're getting a sign of what Jesus is now about to do to show us not just how deep his love goes, but how widely his love is offered. This is a love anybody can get in on. We think about Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt. They didn't do anything wrong to get themselves stuck in that mess. They were sympathetic. They were weaker, helpless people bullied by an empire that didn't care about them. And they didn't deserve it. Who doesn't love an underdog? Seeing someone in a position like that one, who wouldn't want to see their oppressor get what they deserve? It isn't hard to see why God would deliver them back then, especially since it cost him nothing. But at the cross, not only did his love cost him more, his love at the cross was aimed not at helpless, innocent children. His love was aimed at his own enemies. Aimed at those who got themselves in the mess they were in. Aimed at us. Precisely by the fact that we rejected him in the first place. I mean, right on either side of this, of Jesus' discussion here, of, of this glory he's going to get from the Father and give to the Father, did you notice what's on right, either side of it is, is Judas, who betrays him at Jesus' command, orchestrating his own execution, and Peter, who, as we'll see next week, is just about to betray Jesus too by denying he even knows him at the moment that he needs him most. Jesus is orchestrating his own execution and he's doing it for a man who will turn his back on him at the worst possible time. That is glorious love. That's a love you won't find anywhere else. Here's a love that was not easy to give, offered to those who didn't deserve to receive it. This is the love we've been singing about all morning already. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to lay aside his crown for my soul? Friends, you need to know love is a huge emphasis right at the center of Christianity at its best. And at our best, you can see wonderful, beautiful love in Christians for anyone that comes across their path. That's true. We're about to talk about how important love is, especially in the life of a local church and what it looks like when it's working as it ought to. But much as we said last week, we, we can't get to that yet unless you know now That before Jesus is an example to follow, Jesus is a gift to receive. He's not an ideal put on our shoulders to to, to follow through on. 
He is a savior who came to save sinners. He's not another impossible standard to, to make you feel more guilty. He is a standard met completely, perfectly, given to you now as your own track record if you'll have him. And a forgiveness that is complete and total. A forgiveness you can't ruin by anything you've already done or anything you will do. Right now, you can receive Jesus as the gift of love he was meant to be before he is ever your model for love that you show to other people. Would you? We would love to talk to you today about what it looks like to be forgiven by him and to live in the habitat of his love. And if you accept this gift, then you're ready for the other theme in this text, for the theme we'll spend the rest of our time on. When you see this glory that Jesus shows to us in God's redeeming love for sinners, then you're ready to see the glory that Jesus shows through us, our love for one another as Christians. You've seen the glory Jesus shows to us. Now look with me at the glory Jesus shows through us. Verse 33, it's a hinge moment. Jesus has just mentioned this glory that's about to be given to him and to his father and this death that he's gonna die for sinners. But now, as soon as he's mentioned what's about to be visible for the first time, he tells his disciples that he's actually going away. I'm gonna show you something and then I, myself, my body, I'm gonna disappear. Verse 33, yet a little while I'm with you, you'll seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So, this one who's come to show the glory of the invisible God, this one who's come to do that in a brand new way for the first time, this one through whom John saw that glory that's full of grace and truth, now he's going to be invisible again? And it's this statement that sets up the new command of verses 34 and 35. A new command I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's going on here? I want to show you what Jesus calls us to and how we can obey him what Jesus calls us to, and how we can obey him. Right here, in these two verses, Jesus is showing us what a local church is for, what, what our church is for. Our mission as a church is to glorify God through a love for one another that reflects his love for us. This verse is a commissioning. In fact, the closest parallels I know to this text in the New Testament are actually Places in other gospels where Jesus gives a final commission to his disciples before he leaves earth. Matthew 28 is one of the most famous ones of these. Matthew 28 is known as the Great Commission. It's the very end of Matthew's story of Jesus and all that he did and all that he taught. And, and, and at the very end of it, Jesus is about to ascend back to his father. He's about to, to do the thing he's talking about here in John 13. He's going away for a little while. And Jesus uses his last words on that occasion to tell his disciples what they're supposed to do while he's gone. He says to go, to make disciples of all nations, to, to baptize them and to teach them the things that Jesus taught to them. Same setup in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus is once again with all of his people around him. He's about to leave. They're going to watch it happen. They want to know, when is your kingdom coming? When can we bank on you establishing your throne right here in this world where we can see it? 
They want to know when his kingdom is coming. And he tells them, that's not for you to know. Don't think about that right now. And then he tells them, while I'm gone, while you're waiting for this kingdom to come, here's what you should pay attention to. Here's what your job is. And he commissions them. You'll be my witnesses. Not just in Jerusalem and Judea where it's comfortable, but in Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth. Here in John 13, it's the same setup. Jesus is pointing ahead to the thing that they'll experience in Acts 1-8 or Matthew 28. He's about to leave. And with his leaving as that context, he gives them a commission, just like he did in those other places. This glory-revealing Son of God isn't going to be visible for much longer. So now what? Now it's over to you. And what he's saying here is basically the same thing he says in Acts 1-8. You will be my witnesses. But right here he tells us what it looks like to witness to him. Here he's giving us a precious window in how we show his glory to the world. There's a lot of ways God gets glory in this world. And a lot of things he could have told his followers to do to glorify him. He could have told them to build something kind of like what was first built in Jerusalem back when Israel was a thing. Back when David was king and it was in their glory days. Then his glory was seen in just drop-dead gorgeous buildings. Buildings where every detail was exactly what he wanted. Where there was bling everywhere. Gold and, and jewels. and it, Everywhere you looked, you saw beauty radiating out of it. The temple and the palaces. And he, he could have called for that. That would have glorified him. He could have called on us to glorify him through exquisite works of art. I know many of you are up to that task. And in your art, you do glorify him. But that isn't what he called the local church to do. Not here. Not in this place. There are a lot of ways he could have asked the church to bring glory to him while he's gone. But look at what he chooses. Look at how he wants us to pull back the veil and keep on showing the glory he came to earth to show for the first time. He wants to do that work through relationships of love that are centered on him. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. It's our love, friends. It's our love for each other in the context of a local church that shows his glory to other people and invites them into it. He's not just sharing a nice idea here. He's calling for real communities of real people in real places showing real love to one another. That's the love that glorifies him. So what would it look like? What would it look like for our church to, to, to do this work in his name? What are we working and praying for in our life together so that we can be faithful to this commission he's given to us? That's what I want to talk about for the rest of our time together. Hopefully it's clear enough what Jesus is saying, what he calls for from us. Now let's talk about how we can obey him. If we're going to obey Jesus as a community, we're going to have to work and pray towards three things. Three things. A love, first of all, that's deep like his. A love that's deep like his. That's the glory that he's shown us in coming all the way here for us and in giving up his own life so that we could live through him. We talked about this sort of love last week, so I'm not going to belabor the point now. But a love like Jesus' love, it's costly love. It's, it's, a, it's a love that shows up as commitment, not as a, a feeling, not as a sentiment, 
A love that's caught up in actions that serve the needs of the people that we love. Sometimes the way we talk about love is more sentimental. I mean, I have a certain kind of love for characters in a novel that really grips me. If I'm all the way in and the author's doing his job and I can really feel it, I'm empathizing with people who don't even exist. I'm feeling something for them. I want good for them. I'm rooting for them. I'm hurt when they hurt. I'm feeling a sentimental attachment to characters that don't even exist if a novelist has done the job well. And sometimes we can settle for that kind of love even in real communities like ours. I'll know I love someone if it feels like love. But that kind of love often just doesn't survive the closed book or the raised lights when the show is over. Christian love has got to be more resilient than that. In fact, Christian love is a kind of love, if if it's modeled on Jesus' love, that that shows up sometimes best when you don't feel like it. That that sometimes is a path to feeling differently for someone because you're, you're first and foremost committed to their good and putting yourself on the line to seek it. This is the kind of love that glorifies him. That's the kind of love that he showed to us. One of the things we pray for regularly in our Sunday evening prayer services, which will be starting back up again, in late August, a little teaser for you all, August 28th, first Sunday evening prayer service for the year, we'll be back. One of the things we closed last year praying for regularly was, was just taking one of the one another commands. The New Testament is full of these commands for how we're supposed to love each other, costly commands. Like put yourself on the line, put yourself out there kinds of commands. We just took one of them each week and we prayed, Lord, help our church love one another in this specific way. And right here, Jesus is telling us why prayers like that are so important. His, his glory is on the line. It isn't just that we want to be part of a church where people bear with one another, where people bear each other's burdens, where, they, where they're there when they're needed. I, of course, I want to be part of a church like that. It'd be great, wouldn't it? But, but, but much more important than how wonderful our experience would be in a church like that, God gets glory from a church like that. When our love is deep, remarkably, noticeably deep and costly, let's pray that that's the kind of love he'll give to us for one another. There's a second way, though, that our love will need to reflect his if we're to glorify him in the way he's called us to. We'll need not just a love that's deep like his, but, but we'll need a love that's, that's wide like his. Think about who's in the room right now when Jesus is talking. This is a motley crew right here. And Jesus did not have a type, let me tell you. He had tradesmen who worked with their hands, like Andrew the fisherman. He was there at that table. He had white-collar bureaucrats, like Matthew, who was a tax collector. And speaking of Matthew, the tax collector, he was at this table. You know who else was there? Simon the Zealot. Now, that might not mean much to you, but you should know that zealots like Simon used to devote their lives to rooting out tax collectors like Matthew. Matthew, when Jesus called him, was spending his life serving the evil empire. Simon was like Luke Skywalker. He was resisting it. And now because of Jesus, they're at the same table, oriented to the same Lord, looking to follow him instead of these causes they had once served. It's a sign of health in a church when the people in it aren't like one another and love one another anyway. A church made up of cool cats and total nerds, young and old, blue collar and white collar, rich and poor, people of different races and different education backgrounds and different politics. Friends, we're always praying for a church like that. 
That comes up often in the prayers we pray behind this pulpit and the prayers we pray on our Sunday evening services and hopefully the prayers you're praying in your private prayer lives for our church. We often pray for it. And that's partly because it, be, it is so rich and rewarding to be part of a community where people aren't all the same. A community that's easy to break into because nobody's that picky about who they'll love. We all want to be part of that kind of community, don't we? But, but we work and pray for a community like that mostly because God gets glory from it. It says something about him when our church looks that way. How good must God be? What love must they be enjoying from him? If all these people get to connect through him, if people who'd never think about reading the same kind of book in their spare time or watching the same kind of TV or shopping at the same stores or eating the same food or listening to the same music, if they're all full of joy at belonging to the same community, what does that say? I'll tell you what it says. It says, oh, they found something in Christ that's a lot more than a personal preference. They found life in him. But there's even more to this wider reach that Jesus' love calls for and our love for one another. It isn't just love that's wide enough to include people who aren't like us. I mean, to, to show the glory that he deserves, we're going to have to love one another even when that love is not deserved. Maybe especially when that love is not deserved. Especially when we've been wronged. I, I, surely all of us have friendships that are deeply meaningful to us. You know, the, the, the kind that, that involve people we always like to be around, people we admire and aspire to be like, people we, we know love us in return, people who get us, people who think well of us, people who aren't holding us under a microscope looking for every flaw. You know, the kind of people you can just rest and and, and revive around. Those are precious friendships. Praise God that he gives them to us. I hope you've got a lot of them. But if relationships like that are all we have in mind when we talk about loving one another, our love just doesn't come close to reflecting the glory of Jesus' love. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter six. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But, but you love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. You will reflect Him, in other words. For He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Friends, there's a reason that one of the promises we make in our church covenant when we join this church is that we'll be slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. If you want to do real community with real people in a real place where you really know one another, then you're going to find yourself in community with people who aren't always going to treat you the way you need to be treated. Because real people have real blind spots, real problems, and real sin. All that means 
that conflict in the context of a local church is not a sign that the wheels are coming off. It's a sign that real people are loving each other with some real honesty. And when you run into conflict in our local church, as I can promise you, you will, what this text tells us is to think differently about what we're going through in that moment. Right here, in that moment, that conflict is a precious opportunity to fulfill the mission that Jesus has given to our church. Right here, in loving across whatever wrong led to whatever spat you might be in, right here, you get to glorify God when you treat his love as if it's more precious than you getting what you deserve from everybody else. That is a love that glorifies him. Because his love made peace with us. Who are we to hold on to our wrongs that we've suffered from one another? We need a love that's deep like his. And we need a love that's wide like his. If we're going to fulfill this mission he's given to us. To show all people we're his disciples. Through the way we love one another. And there's one more thing we'll need. Not just a love that's deep. Not just a love that's wide but we'll need a love that leads toward him. The death of Jesus isn't just an example of how far Jesus was willing to go for his people. It's an example of where he wanted to take his people. His death was purposeful. It was meant to remove a barrier that had kept people back from God. Uh, An old classic book about the death of Jesus and what it accomplished book by a guy named James Denny, there's this illustration of, uh, where he says, you know, it's one thing if, if somebody's out there, or if somebody comes running down a dock at full speed, you're, you're standing on the dock, he blows past you and he shouts, I love you, as he plunges into the lake and drowns. Maybe he just demonstrated how much he loves you by doing that, but it's a little arbitrary, isn't it? There's other ways he could have showed you that he loved you. But if you're the one who's in the lake and you're the one who's drowning and you're, and you're floundering around and you don't have the strength to swim back to the shore and he runs in and he dives in shouting, I love you, so that he can grab you, swim you to shore, even though he drowns in the process, that's a purposeful love. That's a love that, that, that says something. And that's the kind of love Jesus showed on the cross. It isn't just showing how deep his love is. It isn't even just showing how wide his love is, that he'll, he would die for anyone. It's showing us what his love aims us toward. He wants us to know him. He wants to satisfy us with the gift of his friendship. And if our love for each other is going to reflect his love for us, then the purpose of our friendships ultimately has to be more than just serving each other when we're in need. It has to be leading one another to Jesus, the only one in whom we can find the joy we were made to crave. Our love for each other has to be oriented towards discipleship. If it's to be the distinctive God-glorifying love that we're called to right here in this text. That's what his love was for. That's what our relationships are for too. So we promise when we join our church that we're going to live together in Christian love. And then we promise that's going to look like showing affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. Paying attention to what each other needs. We're going to encourage each other to 
forsake sin and to pursue holiness because we know sin never delivers. It's, it's only ever disappointing and it only ever dishonors the God we were made to honor. We're gonna help each other forsake sin if our love is like his love. And we're gonna help each other pursue holiness because that, that's where the fun is. That's where the joy is. That's where life thrives. So many one another's in the New Testament are pointing us in this way. Exhort one another every day so that no one falls prey to an unbelieving heart. Hebrews chapter three. Let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good deeds, not forsaking assembling together like we're doing right now. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Our relationships are purpose-driven because his relationship to us was purpose-driven. And we want him to get the glory that he deserves by the way we use our friendships with one another. There's a love that through us will show his glory to the world. And that's what we're here for. So let's pray that the Lord will give us the strength we need to honor him and respond as as he has called us to. Father, we know your love for us is our only hope in life and in death. We first of all rest in it. But we know it has also given us a calling a good and worthy and beautiful calling, and we want to walk in it. And so we ask for your help. By the power of your spirit, give us hearts like yours so that our love for each other leads us and anyone who's watching deeper and deeper into your love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.